0: Hi, I'm Stacy. I love talking about how to know and live out God's callings in our lives, preferably cozied up with steaming beverages in comfy armchairs. You can head to my website, stacysumeru.com, for more on discernment. That's S T A C E Y S U M E R E A U.com. Are you? Thank you so much, whether this is your first time or your 27th time listening to the called and caffeinated podcast. It's so good to have you with me today. I'm so excited to dive into another amazing episode. I wanted to thank first of all, my caffeinated cronies who are my anchors on Patreon. If you would like to take me out for a latte every month, that's $5 to join caffeinated cronies. It's only $5. And your gift makes such a difference in helping bring more excellent free content out there to you that honestly i just don't see anywhere else in the catholic world short of becoming my caffeinated crony you can also write an itunes review to help me out it really does make a difference and i would so appreciate it you can also subscribe to my website so you never miss another episode and please do share this with your friends so even though we are in full swing, pumpkin spice territory, I'm already thinking ahead to Christmas. So I don't know how all of this is happening so fast, but I am adding a shop to my website very soon. Not a whole lot of things, but we're going to have uh, two t-shirt designs and two print designs that go hand in hand with my ministry with messages that I'm so excited to share with you. I am just super busy, you know, preparing for, uh, for all of these beautiful Christmas events we have coming up, and I'm looking forward to adding bundles to my website so so that if you want to buy something for you and for a friend or several friends, you can save money on buying multiple things. So very exciting. Please pray for me as I move into this next new area of ministry here. At the end of the episode, there's going to be an Alleluia for the Feast of Christ the King, October 30th. I found this and I just had to put it on my podcast because it's gorgeous. It's a chant Alleluia. Let's move on to our episode today. So you do not have to be a scripture scholar to listen to this, but Sarah Christmeyer is. (laughs) She is gonna break down the Old Testament for those of us who may be a little intimidated by reading the Bible. She actually has the distinction of being the co-developer and founding editor of the Great Adventure Catholic Bible Study Program. Anybody use that when they were a kid? I did. Um, So she's like talking to a celebrity for me. (laughs) And she is the author or co-author of more than a dozen books and Bible studies. So we're going to be talking about her latest book, Becoming Women of the Word. Sarah serves as an adjunct faculty member at St. Charles Borromeo Seminary in Philadelphia, and she leads retreats to the Holy Land with Dr. Edward Sri, who some of you may have seen on social media is my next podcast guest after this. Ah, guys, I don't know how all these good, wonderful things keep happening to me, but Dr. Edward Sri is going to be the next guest. So... First of all, we're going to be talking today with Sarah. I know you are going to love her. This woman is full of depth and life and spirit, so enjoy. Sarah, thank you so much for being my guest on Called and Caffeinated. Thank you, Stacey. I'm really excited to be here with you. Yeah, your book was so beautiful and is one of those books where when I read it, it stays with me, what I've read, and then I keep thinking about it as I'm doing dishes or laundry or whatever, or right before I fall asleep. And I get new insights as I, the more I think about it. So I really like how you've chosen to go into some very thought-provoking, very deep subjects. And it clearly comes from a place of your own deep reflection and the fact that you really live with these, these women, these Old Testament women, and you've really thought about their life and what it's like for them. So thank you for sharing all your insights in the book.
1: Oh, you're welcome. I really enjoyed doing it.
0: Yeah, I can tell. You write with a lot of passion. And you shared some great stories about your own family as well, which is really neat. Yeah.
1: I find that um, sometimes stories in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, can seem very far off and distant from us. And uh, I have had the, the benefit or the, the blessing of having women and men in my life who have illustrated the same types of things that I read about in the Bible. So I thought if I paired them together it would make it a little bit more meaningful to people to connect to their own lives.
0: Mm, yes, absolutely. We definitely need that now because sometimes you just like I, I read the I'm working my way through the Old Testament as well. And sometimes I am just like I don't understand why this action followed that action because I don't understand why the first action was significant because mm. it was such a long time ago in different culture. So you do a great job of really breaking that down and you've Thank got your coffee in hand, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. I am never far from coffee.
0: (laughs) Me neither. I'm on my second cup and uh, I'm at my husband's grandma's house right now and she has a brand new Keurig. So I'm treating myself to a cup of hazelnut coffee, which is divine as we enter into Mm -hmm. fall here. (laughs) So, Sarah, what calls have you received from God in your life so far and what do those calls look and feel like?
1: So... uh, Obviously, there's a call to marriage, a call to motherhood, you know this call to holiness, whatever in in my own life, uh, and something that I started out this book with, I had uh, what for me was a rather dramatic call. I'm not sure that um, calls are always dramatic. but I was raised Protestant. And I married a man who had been raised Catholic and left the Catholic Church and kind of came back to God through me and went to the Protestant Church with me. And after we were married and I got pregnant, he decided that um, the Catholic Church was calling him back and that we ought to baptize the baby Catholic. And so this just put me into a tailspin because... My family, a uh, wonderful, strong Christian family, but um, as, as one of my great-aunts said to me once, Sarah, never forget we are Reformationist Christians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Catholic wasn't really something that was um, on, my, on my list of things that would be an option for our family. <laughs> I was like telling my husband, this was not in the prenup, you know? <laughs> <laughs> But it, um, in order uh, to get some answers, because I was so confused and troubled and so on, uh, I was just searching and searching and searching for answers, and he couldn't give me any. Hmm. I actually joined RCIA to prove him wrong, to show him why we couldn't be Catholic. kind of backfired. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, just to, to cut to the point that you asked about, um, in order to, uh, as I felt, kind of getting, getting myself sucked in deeper and deeper as my husband was becoming more and more Catholic, and he didn't say I had to follow, but I just, it was a very distressing thing to me. And I would pray and pray about what am I going to do. And my whole life, actually, a lot of things in our life were falling apart at the same time. So I was in uh, quite a bit of distress. And I felt the Lord come to me one day in prayer, and He said to me first, He said, "Sarah, who brought you here?" Mm-hmm. And it had never occurred to me that He might have allowed me to come there or brought me to that position because it was a horrible place. I was I was frantic with worry and fear, and the way He said it, though, it was like a rhetorical question, and uh, so I let Him have it. I was furious, and um, when I finally quieted down, uh, it was as though I saw in my mind a, a green field and him extending his hand to me. And he said, Sarah, I'm going this way. Are you coming? Mm. And I'm you know, i not going to say it was an audible voice, but it, uh, very, very clearly, that's what I heard him say to me. Mm. And it just stopped me in my tracks because it had not occurred to me that, that this was a a direction that I should be heading in. I was trying to get out of it. I wanted God to save me out of it. And the thought that he might be leading me in this direction was shocking. Mm. Um, But I was brought up that if the Lord asked you to go somewhere scary, even if it was to be a missionary in the wilds of Africa or something, like some of my relatives, that you go because he will be with you. And, um, Becoming Catholic to me at the time was like going to Africa. I mean, it was just such a foreign, it was a frightening thing to me. It was nothing, it was outside of my experience. Uh, I wasn't quite sure it was Christian, um isn't that that Uh, fun it is (laughs) (laughs) so uh what i i did at that time is i had to put my hand in his and follow Mm. and i didn't feel like he was saying join the catholic church because this is the only way i just felt like i've been i've been leading you are you going to follow me Mm. in this path that i have for you or are you not and as i look back on it He was asking me to trust him in many things because there were a lot of things going on in my life. Mm. And the ability to say, okay, Lord, I set aside my agenda, my understanding of what I think is best for me and uh, accepting what you might have for me and going to this unknown place. That's faith. That's what faith is all about. Mm. So that was my biggest, most dramatic call. And I, I don't think that calling is always that dramatic, but I launched the book with that because that's what the book is about. How do you, how do you follow God when, how do you have faith when your world is falling apart or when you don't know where you're going or, you know, it's taking too long. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: anyway,
0: that is definitely a very strong theme is the way that the women of the Bible faced these issues incredible circumstances, uh, hopeless, many of them, hopeless circumstances were mm-hmm. absolutely impossible circumstances. And it was their faith in God that made it possible. It was taking that, that next step without knowing exactly what was going to happen, which yeah. that next step in faith. Yeah. Which parallels your own life so beautifully. Yeah. And I, I do love how you shared about the call, like you actually did hear a voice. It wasn't really a voice, but it was a voice. It was just a, it was almost like an intuitive understanding, it sounds Mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the Lord has spoken to me that way as well. Um, I shared, and I think it was like episode eight of this show, was my discernment story of my vocation. And it was a very similar sort of, um, it was a knowledge of what he had said in my heart without actually hearing a voice. And it was Mm -hmm. kind kind of a vision, you know, like you said, with the green field, kind of a vision of him giving me his heart oh, and beautiful. inviting. Yeah, it was absolutely life altering and inviting me to give him my heart, asking for my heart. And there is, I think sometimes we, I, I've talked to a lot of people on the show about how you hear God's calls. And sometimes m- most of them say, well, I didn't hear a voice, but you know what? Sometimes you will hear a voice. If you oh. Like we shouldn't discount that either because uh, because then it, we'll pray as though God isn't going to answer. And we should pray as though God's going to answer, because if he chooses to, he will.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, three- I think with a call, we, we expect a call from God to be to something really dramatic or big or whatever, but... He's calling us every day just to follow him and to do what's in front of us. Yeah. And that's really boring sometimes. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes. (laughs) That's what we're
1: called to do, you know, make ourselves small so he can be big and just love among the people who we're with and, you know, put one foot in front of the other, carry our cross. That's what we're called to do.
0: Yeah, and it's so interesting, too, how the circumstances of your life were already leading you in the direction that he wanted. It was like the final and the biggest piece was just you letting it happen and Mm -hmm. you uh, not giving into the distress, but rather being at peace and taking the next step. Uh,
1: Kind of, yeah. I'm not sure I was at peace. Um, Oh, okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you took the step.
1: I took the step. I took the step and, you know... It was the it was probably the hardest thing I've ever done, frankly. Um, and I felt as though I was jumping off a cliff into a black hole. But he was he's faithful. He caught me on the other side, and um, the light started coming bit by bit, and then stronger and stronger. And I never from the, from the place I was standing then, I could never imagine what he had in mind for me. And I I still boggle at the way I've been able to help open up the Bible to Catholics. um, Which which we need.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We need. It's a needed ministry for Catholics because there's a lot of intimidation about reading scripture, which there honestly shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not easy to understand all the time, but it takes work. It's true. So why does the book have a tree on the front? I'm curious about that.
1: Oh, Great question. Yeah, because it's about women of the Bible, right? And here we have... For uh, people who are listening and can't see the book, there is a picture of a tree that's in the middle of the desert. And as as I was spending time writing this book and thinking about it and, and what it means to me to follow God's call and to have faith, put my faith in him and to walk with him, the image that kept coming to me was that picture from some chapter I mean Psalm one mm. that says that the, the man, the person who is blessed, who meditates on the word of God day and night, and who is like a tree with the roots, you know, deep into a river of water. Mm. And so that when the winds come and the storms and the drought and you know the heat of summer or the cold of winter. All of that can come and batter against the tree, but the tree stands strong. Mm. And that—that that is what faith in God does. And so the book is called Becoming Women of the Word. And I think about a woman of the word as a woman who has her spiritual roots plunged deep into the word of God, into the sacraments, into prayer, mm-hmm. and having that strength coming from, you know, the Holy Spirit, the life that he provides that enables us to stand through the desert, Mm. whatever hits us. So that's why there is a tree on the front.
0: Mm. I love that you brought that up. I was just uh, taking out all of the dead branches from a uh, little vegetable plot that we inherited uh, with our house and the season's over now. So I was taking out all of the all of the things and um, the things (laughs) on the top part, the visible part. And underneath there were so many roots, like the network of roots was unbelievable compared to what you could actually see above the soil. So of course I was thinking about that and I was like, I need to, I'm giving some talks coming up. I was like, I got to put this into my talks, like direct, yeah, direct um, correlation there of like your roots have to be so deep. You're so right um so let's start let's start with the the story you shared about leaving oxford to or leaving your opportunity to go to oxford and you already had the plane ticket bought you were about to step on the plane and your grandmother got sick and so you had this choice in front of you where you had to choose either to you know follow your your dream or to follow your heart and take care of your grandma and uh you chose to follow your heart. You chose to take care of her, which I think is so brave. And I think this is a struggle that so many of us go through. You know, do I follow my heart or do I follow my dreams? And um, mm-hmm. so what was the what was the tipping point for you at age 18? You know, you're a very young person and, uh, then, and so many of us struggle to even know who we are and really know what's truly, truly important at that age. What was the tipping point that made you decide to stay and take care of your grandmother?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's hard for me to pinpoint exactly a tipping point. Um, I actually was twenty one if that makes any difference at all. but I had you know, I was an English lit major. I had just had this dream of Oxford I love I love, love, love it. and I had the opportunity to go and study there and As you said, the plane ticket was bought and everything. And the thing was that um, I didn't have much money. Um, I had prayed and prayed and prayed for like a year. And Lord, if you want me to do this, you know, help everything to line up. And I really had felt strongly that God wanted me to go. And Mm -hmm. so, of course, I'm embellishing all my dreams and just kind of putting all my eggs in that basket. Mm -hmm. And then we got the news that my grandmother, who if you read this book, you will meet her because she she figures into a number of the stories that I tell. I was very close to her and she had cancer and um, it was uh, quite bad. And the family was gathering together for sort of one last time to be with her. And I thought, if I go to England, I may never see her again. I mean, I didn't know when I was coming back. I didn't have money to fly back and forth. Mm -hmm. Um, and I knew that she would tell me, honey, you've been looking forward to this, go. Mm. She would not, she would be the first one to tell me to go. But I was in agony. And I really, um, I, I, one of my aunts I was staying with at the time and she kind of helped me to work through everything. But the reason I put it, I actually put this in the chapter of Ruth because the thing that made me decide uh, was love. Um, love trumped my dreams for myself, I guess. And at 21, you think that you have your whole life ahead of you. I, I think it, at some level, I thought, well, I'll go do it later. Of course, I never did. Um, but I, I was, I just, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And, you know, again, I did not hear a voice, but I really felt uneasy about going. And when I decided, you know what, I can just say no. A lot of people had given me money. I had to, like, I'd spend it on the ticket. I had to get money and give it back to people. It wasn't easy. But once I made that decision, my heart felt it at rest, Mm -hmm. and I went to be with her, and it just paid off. It was the best decision ever. It was awesome.
0: Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah, we are definitely faced with a lot of choices and it feels overwhelming. I just remember being so overwhelmed at 18 and, people's, and people are asking, where are you going to college? And mm-hmm. and then people say, oh, these are the best years of your life, you know, live it up. And I think that led to a bit of an unrealistic expectation that it was going to be all glamour and, you know, living your dream life and all of that. And, and I love that you were mature enough to really choose to prioritize someone who is so dear to you. It's very brave.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it felt... brave at the time, but (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm convinced that it was the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, I think when you're brave, you very rarely feel brave at the time. (laughs) I think it's only looking back when you're able to say, yep, that was brave. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the women you talk about in the book is uh, Sarah. And as we know, uh, she had to wait. Basically, a, a lifetime for a child that she was promised but wasn't coming. You know, she was waiting and waiting. Um, and you wrote in the book, When I feel insufficient or empty or not up to the task, Sarah shows me that waiting is worthwhile and that there's something about human emptiness that gives God a place in which to plant his life. So I think that a lot of my listeners can really relate to this waiting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I love that your book points out there's value in it. So, how do we kind of actively trust God when our dreams are unfulfilled and we're waiting and waiting. and We can't seem to, uh, see the next, the next turn in the road.
1: Yeah. Waiting. Um, I, I really liked starting out with her. God, God started out with her, actually. You know, Eve was the first person who kind of lost her trust in God. And then when God goes about forming his people and he calls Abraham, you know, to follow him to a place that he would show him, uh, he calls Sarah, too. And he very specifically wants Sarah to be the mother of his people that he's forming. Mm. And I it just came to me as I was reading their story, that just as Abraham is, he's known as the father of faith, you know, he's the father of those who have faith, but Sarah's the mother of those who have faith. Mm. And there was something about the fact that she could not have children by herself, that God chose her, that therefore she was going to be the mother of his people. It was not going to be Abraham's nephew who could have legitimately been the heir. It was not going to be his servant who could have legitimately been the heir. It's not even going to be Abraham's firstborn son, you know, who he had because they got tired of waiting and, and had Sarah's handmaid, you know, uh, bear his child. Mm-hmm. The, the person who was going to be the next patriarch and the the father of the children of Israel, was going to be Sarah's firstborn son at age 90, which is impossible. And we watch as she waits and waits and waits. And I think that's part of the character of what it is to be a Christian, Mm. that we need to be able to wait and related to that, that often we're chosen In spite of or maybe even because we can't do it by ourselves. So Sarah's chosen because she's infertile to be the mother. Mm -hmm. You know, wrap your head around that one. Yeah. (laughs) That is (laughs) so we have these inadequacies and these inabilities that we see as things that, you know, God, overcome this for me or, or fix it or whatever. But the reason I wrote that there's something about it that gives God a place in which to plant his life. I feel like that emptiness and that inability or whatever, you can look at it as a whole, or you can hold it almost like a nest and say, Lord, you plant something here. Mm -hmm. What is it? Because, because God delights in, in bringing life where there is no possibility of life, you know, Mm -hmm. he delights in, giving through us and he often wants it to be obvious that it was he who did it so that that gives us more faith to be able to trust in him. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you asked how, what did you ask me? How do we actively trust in God?
0: Yeah. I mean, everything you've said so far is a beautiful answer, but yeah. Uh, if you have any other thoughts,
1: go Yeah, sometimes, I mean, I, I struggle with that because, um, You know, so something you said, I'm trying to think of what you said, Um, as we wait and our dreams are unfulfilled, Mm -hmm. we actively trust God. Mm -hmm. So I think that sometimes we put so much stock in our own dreams and we forget to say, God, what do you want from me? Mm -hmm. And we can get so fixated on, this is the only thing that is going to satisfy me, Mm -hmm. I mean, we see that with Rachel and Leah in the next story. Yes. You know, rather than saying, Lord, what do you want? Oh, that makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, And then, they, then you do it and then you just wait and you wait. And waiting requires you to move beyond yourself and put your hope in God.
2: Mm-hmm. It
1: requires that. And so as we do that, we sort of exercise that, that muscle, I guess. So it means stepping out. When you can't see and trusting Him, letting go of your own agenda, you know, and just trusting that He
0: knows what is best. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's an easy answer, but um, yeah. Uh, that was so good, though. I love how you said that God delights in bringing life where there was none. And yeah, I've been thinking lately about this is separate but related, just about the terrible. Mass shootings that happened earlier in August, I mean, they're happening all the time. There's been more mass shootings this year than there have been days in the year, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. the really bad ones that happened earlier in August, I had a couple listeners reach out and say, how are you dealing with this? Recognizing the stories of heroism that came out of that situation, even as it was happening, it's so sad. But at the same time, that heroism is Christ-like. You know, there's those acts of, of beauty that come out of some out of death you know out of this this lack of of life um so again that's separate (laughs) might edit that out later because it's not about discernment but i think (laughs) i think it's so hopeful you know it's so uh when you think about the fact that god's just waiting to plant life where there is none
1: and also um If our true home is really somewhere beyond, I mean, in in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, um, the author talks about all these heroes of the faith, and he really focuses a lot on Abraham and Sarah. And he makes the point that all these people died without having received what had been promised. Mm. Uh, Think about that one for a little while, but we we have been promised something that transcends this life <laughs> and if we can keep our eyes on what is he- ahead have kind of an eternal perspective as it as it were maybe it's a little bit easier to see oh god you know why am i why am i here right now maybe the fact that i'm here and i know god and he has comforted me and helped me and given me strength He's given me so much of that. Maybe I'm here in this really awful, ugly place so that some of that can overflow to the people around me. Mm-hmm. And if I wasn't in this awful place, maybe they wouldn't get it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So for God to reach into the the bad places of the world where there are those, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: sometimes he does that through us, which means we have to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, so to always have our eyes on him and to know that, He loves us. He has our ultimate good in mind. He has a plan that is for our blessing. Mm -hmm. So if we've prayed to get out of something and we're, you know, sin isn't keeping us there or whatever, and he has us here in this position, maybe we're here for such a time as this, you know, as um, Esther said, told him.
0: I love that quote. I want to put that quote on a print on my wall, (laughs) on a (laughs) t-shirt. I know they exist already, but yeah, it's so good. Yeah. I I think that every longing we have in this life that is not fulfilled will be fulfilled in heaven. Yeah. Because what are our longings? They're pointing us to God. Exactly. He wants to fill us. Yeah. That's beautiful. So let's move to the story of Leah and Rachel, which is so fascinating. And you explain it beautifully in the book. Leah is gorgeous and she has her husband's love, but she's not able to have many children. Whereas Rachel, oh, wait, did I get that backwards? Opposite way. Yep. Opposite You're way. Right. Sorry about that. <laughs> Rachel is the beautiful one. She has her husband's love. Leah is not beautiful, uh, but she's able to have many children. And so... um I think much more so in the, in the Old Testament than now, your ability to have children kind of reflected on your ability, like your worth as a person yeah. <laughs> and yeah. your status. So neither one fully had what they wanted. Neither was both beautiful and able to bear many children. Um, so you wrote in the book, God calls us out of the pain of our longing, not necessarily by erasing it or by giving us what we want, but by giving us himself That is such a profound truth in discernment because a lot of times, and I talk about this a lot, I'll say, God, you know, God wants you to be happy and I mean it fully. But what does that mean? Because, you know, the, really the greatest gift in our, in our life is, is the creator. But, but sometimes we don't want the creator. We want what we want. So, you know, how, what do you have to tell us about finding contentment in what we have when it's not God's will to give us what we want? A big question. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I'll back up for just a second to a thought I had that was related. Uh, I believe God made each one of us with a, like a hole inside a longing. There's something that's missing and it's, it's shaped. It's like a God shaped vacuum. Somebody called it. Mm. Uh, there is, there is something there's a longing inside of ourselves that can only be filled by God. He, he, loves us and love is completed when the person when the loved one loves back Mm. and so uh, this is one of the ways he's built in so that we will be searching for him Mm -hmm. so we can spend our lives trying to fill that hole with the create head uh and that you know can sort of numb the, the pain or the longing or whatever for a certain amount of time but it never fully satisfies because that's not it's not meant to you know, it's meant to kind of point us toward Him. So the more we focus on filling our desires with something that's created, the less it's going to satisfy because it's impo- it's an impossibility. And Leah and Rachel show this so beautifully because, you know, here's Rachel who has everything except, I mean, she doesn't have children, but she's gorgeous. Everybody thinks so. She gets all the, you know, acclamation that you get from that. And her husband adores her. Mm. He doesn't care if she's not having any children because his other wife is having children. Mm. But she, if you watch uh, the interplay between them, she is so focused on, but I don't have children, that she is not grateful for what she does have and she ends up fighting with him and almost despising her husband they don't they don't seem to have a very good relationship she doesn't appreciate his love so even what she has is of worth nothing to her Mm. and then you look at Leah she's the one everybody always feels sorry for um because she's you know was always the didn't look as good as her sister and and couldn't get married and whatever. And so she finally gets married and he doesn't love her. And you watch, um, there's a lot of real estate given to her in the, in the Bible in terms of numbers of words or verses or whatever. And it very carefully tells you every child she has what she names him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you can see as she's naming them, um, I don't. I haven't memorized it. I don't have it in front of me, but it's something like, you know, this time my husband will love me you know, thank goodness I have a child because this will make my husband love me. Mm. So she turns her children into like a, a tool or a weapon or something, um, something that she's using them in order to try to get her husband's love. Mm. So that, that isn't working either. But her fourth child, she names Judah, and she said, because Judah means praise, and she says, this time I will praise the Lord. Mm-hmm. And she takes her mind, her eyes off of the thing that she can't have, that she doesn't have. And she puts her eyes on the Lord and mm-hmm. she starts to find comfort and so on in that way. And I just think that is such a great lesson because the more the more we can be grateful and thankful for the things that we have, And not try to be so demanding. Like Eve, think about Eve in the garden. She's got everything that God created, is theirs, except for one tree. Mm. All they want is that one tree.
0: That's like my children. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and I can say that with love because they're two in one so they don't have any impulse control but they want the one toy that the other one has yeah Not the whole room of toys Sorry, you grow out of it? <laughs> what's that you
1: think they're going to grow out of that
0: <laughs> oh I hope so I hope so I pray for that
1: <laughs> well you know we can be a great example of to our kids by being grateful for what we've got. You know, we're always trying to catch up with the Joneses or whatever, and always wanting things that we don't have and not being grateful for what we do have. You know, it, it, we're the ones who lose when we do that. It just twists us up inside and, and makes that gaping hole bigger and makes us unhappy.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, It's a, it's
1: a horrible thing. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's so much out there about gratitude and looking at the glass half full but i think these really deep insights from the bible really shed light on it in even a more full and complete way and after i read that chapter i was i think i was feeling really tired that day and i just made the decision that i was just going to be really grateful for what i had and you know the the day and the all the following days were so so much better so you and I should have coffee every week. <laughs> I should read really
1: re- that. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: great. Yeah, I love it. So um, speaking of praise, you said Judah number four was was called praise. Um, there's another part of the book, and this was another revolutionary idea to me. Uh, when you're talking about Miriam and her chapter, um, mm-hmm. now Miriam's kind of a, she's she's not perfect, that's for sure. And she commits some sins of uh, lacking trust in God later on. But when uh, Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, and they cross the Red Sea, and then Miriam comes and the first thing they do is they worship. And I love how you said in the book that in, the, in their hurry, you know, they weren't, they weren't even allowed to pack up their houses, they had to get out of Egypt as soon as they could. But they remembered to pack their tambourines, which was such mm-hmm. a cool thing. And so they came prepared to praise. So I thought that was just such a neat idea. So in that, you know, in my life, the attitude is really helping me kind of let go of some of these first world problems and to say prayers of praise, even in the midst of, you know, uh, everything feels like it's going wrong. And, you know, I'm so frustrated because I've been trying to call about this health insurance thing five times and it's not working out, you know, and when things feel a mess like that. So um, what kind of change is that, you know, that attitude brought about in your life when you realize that? Um, can I say
1: something first about Miriam?
0: Absolutely. Please do. I,
1: um, as I sat with that story and thought about it, um, the fact that they, they had not even that they brought their tambourines, that they actually had them because these are slaves Mm. and they've been slaves for a long time and their life is miserable and, they knew how to play them. They knew how to dance. They knew how to sing. So this lets me think that they are not only praising after the fact of God saving them, but that Miriam was probably leading them in praise ahead of time. Hmm. And that concept of praising God no matter what, just like Leah, you know, life is awful. I hate it right now, blah, blah, <laughs> but I'm going to praise God. Hmm. What that does is says there's someone greater here. There's something greater than my problems. Um, one of the most beautiful, moving things I've ever seen is in the um, Holocaust Museum in Israel. It's called Yad Vashem. There is a wall where somebody has painted a poem, and it's it's not really a poem. What it is is the names of all the concentration camps, which I forget. But you know, Treblinka, whatever Auschwitz, Auschwitz, they're all listed. There's, I don't know how many of them, and that's in one color, probably black. And then in between each one of them, there's a word in red. So it'll be like Auschwitz, and then it says praise, tripling, ye, the next one, the Lord. Then the next one, praise, the next one, ye, the next one, the Lord. And so praise ye the Lord, or that might not be the exact words, it's something like that, um, is they brought that with them into those concentration camps Mm. Uh, the ability and the knowledge that that's something to do i think that's deep within the jewish people and you can see it back here in miriam bringing the people to worship with their tambourines they have been praising the lord in the middle of slavery
0: yes
1: and that is such a profound message um, so you asked, what kind of change that attitude has brought about in my life? Um, I, I think about praise less as an attitude than I think about it as an action. Mm. So that I make myself praise. There's this sacrifice of thanksgiving that the Bible talks about. Sometimes it feels like a sacrifice. <laughs> mm. It is hard and my emotions are not going along with it but I am going to praise the Lord because yes. of who he is, because of what he's done and promised. I'm going to fix my eyes there and I'm going to praise him. And what I notice that that does in me when I do it repeatedly is it changes my attitude. It changes my heart. It doesn't always change the situation, but it brings life into me. And um, I don't know if you've read, have you ever read that book, 1,000 Gifts by Anne Voskamp?
0: No, but everyone keeps talking about Anne Voskamp to me, so I probably need to read that book.
1: <laughs> it is wonderful. She has a way with words that is really incredible. It's not the kind of book you read straight through. You just kind of take it in pieces and think
0: about it. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes in case people want to go back to it. Oh, cool.
1: Yeah. So 1,000 Gifts. Um, she's not Catholic, so she, um, she comes very, very close to the meaning of Eucharist. <laughs> You'll notice if you read it, she doesn't quite get there. But e- Eucharist means Thanksgiving. Mm. And she very poignantly and strongly makes the point that giving thanks – always actively you know with your intention intentionally giving thanks builds our faith and leads to joy Mm. and i have i have witnessed that in my own life that you know gratitude and thanksgiving is more than just something nice to do
0: it actually is transformative so Mm -hmm. yeah read that book that sounds good sounds great i'll link to it in the show notes so anyone who wants to can buy it so let's talk about Deborah. So Deborah has this gift, and she has this calling, which um, I think would be very much underrated and perhaps even misunderstood today. So she is an accompanist. She accompanies. Um, the general to victory. Um, and so I think that, you know, w- as women, we, we really accompany our, our spiritual or our physical children throughout their lives. And mm-hmm. this is fulfilling our call to be life givers. And it's not necessarily glamorous, but you know, when you think about it, it's, it's an irreplaceable thing that you need yeah. in your life. You know, when I think about the women who I go to for counsel or anybody who I go to for counsel, it's the, it's the, the people who accompany me. Who I who I go to when I need something um, need to talk through something. So, you know, how does Deborah's story kind of exhibit accompaniment and and in a way that you know makes her truly actually a very strong woman and a very influential woman, even Mm -hmm. though it seems like she's really just taking the back seat.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I think um, I'm. She might look like she's taking a back seat, and she might not, depending on how you read it. But so Deborah uh, is living at a time um, during the time of the judges when Israel is really um, under a lot of pressure from the surrounding surrounding nations, and they are there. I forget what the nation is at the particular time, but it's it's really um, <clears throat> they are patrolling the streets, and they've got chariots, and um, most of the people are ending up kind of sticking to the to the less traveled roads. You know, they're going up into the mountains. They're staying out of the way of these other people. And they're, they're being oppressed. And the people are crying out. They're really having a tough time. And so there's this woman named Deborah who goes and she she sits under a, a tree. That's sort of where she holds court. She goes um, every day and she sits there and the people come and they tell her, her problem, their problems. Mm. She's a very wise, wise counselor. And so this place where she is, she's also, um, you know, giving them advice, maybe making judgments between people who have disagreements and so on. But she's hearing the pain that they're going through. Mm -hmm. And she's also a very prayerful woman. And she knows that, so there's a man named Barak, who is the, um, the leader of whatever army they would have. And God has told Barak to go fight this oppressor. And he's, he's scared to, which is understandable because they are so much more powerful. You know, Barak wouldn't have a chance, you know,
2: ordinarily, mm-hmm.
1: no. So he basically does nothing. So she goes to him. And um, so first of all, she's been accompanying these people and she's been hearing their pain. And she's been seeing this lack of leadership. Mm-hmm. But she knows that God is more powerful than this other nation. And so she goes think it's to
0: it's Cana, actually. Canaan, yes. Yeah, I just checked in the book. I think yeah. it's the Canaanites. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.
1: So um, she goes to Barak and she basically says, hey, God told you to go and fight them. <laughs> Get mm-hmm. up and at them. And he is like, well, uh, you, you're so sure that God would give us victory. Put your money where your mouth is. You know, come mm-hmm. and come with me. And that would be a very odd thing for a woman to go to war, but she says, fine, I'm going to go with you, But let and God is going to be victorious, but I want you to know that um, you're not going to be responsible for the victory. You know, he's going to win through the hand of a woman, and mm. uh, which would be kind of shameful probably for a general at that time. But anyway, she goes with him, and she stands by him, and he still doesn't totally have the faith that he needs, but he has enough faith to go along and he they muster the troops they muster troops from more tribes than any other judge is able to muster troops from and she's the one who listens to god who hears the directions who says okay this is the time for you to go and so on and gives him the go ahead Mm-hmm. And so she kind of calls the shots. She doesn't go into the battle. She doesn't do his job for him. She just stands beside him and reminds him of who God is and of what He's capable of doing, and gives him assurance that God is going to be with him.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: a very strong person beside him, which is just beautiful. And um, I think as mother, that's what that's a very motherly quality, as you said that that. A, Accompaniment, accompaniment being there with someone standing aside but not doing their job letting them do you this know, mm-hmm. you with your kids I'm sure um, mm-hmm. you want them to learn how to walk so you're going to be there give them a little confidence or whatever but they yes. need to learn to walk by themselves yes well um, she's helping them to grow in faith yes um, It's a, it's a beautiful thing
0: it is and I think very underrated I think there's just a lot of uh, there's a less of an appreciation for motherhood in today's today's world, but then also, you know, we're not all called to be physical mothers. So even just uh, say women who are called to be to be nuns, you know, that was a huge revelation for me. Is that the life of a nun is being a life of a life giver, but mm-hmm. in a spiritual sense. Um, but it's just as real. It's it's definitely a, um, you know a calling for any woman, and uh, yeah, I, I think that. That was such a great answer. Sorry. I'm like stumbling over my words. We'll edit this out. (laughs) But that was great. Um, Yeah. So let's talk about, let's talk about Judith and Esther. And not to clump their stories together too much, but in the sense that um, both of them are described as really beautiful physically Mm -hmm. and physical beauty is something that I think for women, it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard to see women who are, more beautiful than we are and it's also hard to be the woman who's who's physically beautiful and many women who are physically beautiful don't feel like they are they don't actually know it and Mm -hmm. certainly we have the beauty industry also telling us that there's always something wrong with us Um, whether we we need to look older or we need to look younger or you know we always have a problem that needs to be fixed to make us more beautiful so as, uh, as you pointed out in the book, some women will really, you know, they'll really cling on to Esther. as like, yeah, like she's beautiful and she, she's brave, you know, but at the same time, too, there can be this feeling like, well, I, I don't have beauty in that way. So, you know, what good am I? And, you know, I, I can't have it all. I can't be as of much service as Esther um, but Which is, of course, not true at all. And I love how Esther actually, and Judith as well, they both use their beauty in the service of their higher calls from God. It's not, it's not that they use their beauty for ill, they use it for good. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this points to a larger reality as well, which is that no matter how we look, God really equips each of us for our own calls. Mm -hmm. whether or not that includes how we look or how sexy our job is or whatever. (laughs) So, you know, how, how does, how do they kind of demonstrate these Judith and Esther, how God is going to, you know, you use everything that we are for our calls from him. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I think, I mean, Esther is a great, example of that because um, well one thing I love about Esther is when it describes her I think it says she's beautiful and lovely Mm. when you when you look up what those words are one of them is the same word that it uses in the beginning of Genesis when we keep reading and God saw that it was good and God Mm. saw that it was good that good word is the word that they use in describing her as being lovely Mm. and so there's this lovely to look at and also this loveliness of person. And do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And we, we see that with Judith as well. And I think that in, ever since the fall, um, it's like goodness and beauty got divided somehow.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: we expect that the you know if someone's really beautiful,
0: they can't be good. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, or I have yeah. to be jealous of them. I have to set myself up against them somehow.
1: Yeah, it yeah. Just, it's so, uh, I, I think that's something that Satan wants to
2: mm-hmm.
1: make us not appreciate the beautiful and good things that God has made or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, Esther, she is beautiful, uh, but at the beginning, she doesn't use her beauty for anything. You know, she's a young girl, and she just uh, gets tapped because... She's beautiful, you know. the The king's looking for another bride, another a queen, and he gets all the most beautiful girls in the kingdom and rounds them up. So she doesn't really have a choice with that. Um, she's, I think, it seems as though she's kind of naive. You don't get the impression that she's using her beauty to catch him, but just that her combination of beauty and goodness captures him,
2: mm.
1: and he makes her his queen. And so Esther ends up the queen. And, you know, here here's the example of God equipping somebody for a, a purpose. She ends up, you know, a number of years later, I think it's like six or seven years later, uh, there's a plot that, that goes on and they're going to kill all the Jews in the kingdom. Well, she has never told anybody that she was Jewish in the court. So her husband, the king, I mean, he doesn't even know it. And she's faced with this choice. Is she going to risk her life? Because, um, so she's one of a number of wives, even though she's the queen. And you don't just go to the king and talk to him. You have to be summoned. And she had not been called to him for a while. And if you go without being asked, uh, he can kill you on the spot. So it's... um, it's not. It's a very risky thing to do to go talk to him. So she's not. It's not as though she's in this position of great power, um, and you know she could just be quiet and all her people would be killed, but she would be saved and she could keep wearing the nice clothes and having all the nice things and
2: mm.
1: hope that the king would call her. But but you see how the circumstances that that she's in kind of bring out the spiritual beauty and strength as her uncle tells her, you know, if if you don't help, God's going to bring help from somewhere, but who knows, but that you were brought to this position for such a time as this. Mm. And that's what you were talking about where she, yes, yes, she was equipped with beauty that got her in the place where, when the world fell apart, she was in a position where she could do something about it.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And it didn't mean abusing her beauty you know, but what did she do? She went down on her knees, she fasted and prayed for a few days, and then she took her life in her hands and she went to the king. And of course, she looks absolutely stunning, even though she's quaking in her boots. Um, But but her beauty just gets her an audience. She Mm -hmm. still has to, you know, pray for wise words to say and for what to do and so on. And of course, um, you know, through a number of meals that she hosts for him, she's able to um, bring about the salvation of her people. Um, but you know that it's not her doing it, it's God doing it for, through her, and all the events come together at just the right time. But clearly, God has given her the beauty and uh, given Mordecai the position that he had, and um, has helped to work through all these things to, to save his people.
0: Mm Hmm. Yeah. There's that, that saying it's like to whom much has been given much will be expected. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, I'm like, Hmm, would I have wanted to be Esther in that moment? That's a tough one. Not sure Mm -hmm. I would have wanted it. So yes, she was given beauty and probably a lot of people were jealous of her, but at the same time, she's got a, you know, it got her to a place where she had to really, really step up and be brave.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: That's beautiful, and even Judith as well. When she went out to kill, I, I don't even know how to say his name. Is it Uh
1: Maybe Holofernes. I don't. You might be correct. I I've, okay. I've, in my mind, it's Holofernes, but okay, uh, who knows?
0: Yeah, not sure. But she goes out to knowing that she's going to try to kill the general to save her people, and she was uh, given beauty that was like like her beauty was already there, but something apparently she appeared even more beautiful when she went out on her mission to to reach out to Holofernes and uh and cut off his head and she was so beautiful that it entranced him to drink all this wine which led to his downfall and i just thought i thought that was really cool too it's like she's you know, she, she God's like, okay, okay, girl, I'm gonna give you a little extra tonight because I know that you know That's I know right. you need it <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Also, I'm really glad that my marriage is not like Esther's marriage. <laughs> <laughs> I had to wait to be summoned to talk to my husband. What a bummer! <laughs> oh, man, yeah,
1: that would be bad.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you so much for all your your beautiful insights. Is there anything else you'd like to share uh, about about your book? You've shared so much, so no pressure. Um,
1: I just hope that when people read it, that um, one, one of the hopes that I have is that stories in your life will come to mind of how God has been faithful to you. Um, there's this thing that women do in passing on the faith that um, is a very beautiful thing. And I'm sure you've had women in your lives who have passed down the stories of God's faithfulness to you. And, um, we need to pass those on to other people. So I'm hoping that by my sharing my stories and also helping people to enter in more deeply into the way God has worked with these women of the Bible, that women will recognize God's hand at work in their own life and pass that on to other people.
0: Absolutely. And I think that the combined stories altogether, just, help me realize, they give me so much hope and help me realize that, yes, God is real. God is faithful. God is working Mm -hmm. through all the messiness of our lives. So thank you for that hope and that encouragement, Sarah.
1: You are welcome. And thank you so much for talking with me and giving me this chance to share. You're most welcome. God bless.
0: I'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode. Send me a message on my website, stacysommerow.com. Don't forget, you can also subscribe there and take a look at my blog if you would like more resources on discernment. Thank you so much for being my guest today. We're gonna move into singing a beautiful, beautiful chant. It's an Alleluia for the Feast of Christ the King, which is coming up at the end of October. And the text says his power is an everlasting power that shall not be taken away and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. Gorgeous. I was really tired when I recorded this, so I feel like I don't sell my best, but you know what? It's one of those things where progress over perfection, y'all like, I was like, okay, this is as good as it's gonna be today. We're just gonna give it to the people and let the Holy Spirit work. <laughs> so thank you again so much, enjoy.
2: está Señor